Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, Raider Nation, and welcome to another edition of the Believe in Raiders podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Dennis Ackerman, pleased to be joined by my partner, as always, Stanford Route. Stan, how we doing, man? Man, what's going on? Uh, Dennis, it is June. This year is trucking along, and we're getting closer and closer to that football season. So I'm always going to be in high spirits whenever we start trucking around the corner, getting back to that sport that I know and love so well. Well, we got another league coming back, actually. Uh, I read today the USFL is going to relaunch in 2022. I know for us older folks, uh, it was around uh, 1983 to 1985. Yep. Are you old enough to remember it, Stan? I'm old enough to remember it a little bit, not necessarily live, but I do remember how so many guys actually got their start in the USFL and going on to have Hall of Fame NFL careers. Yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area, and we had the Oakland Invaders, and I remember going to some games. I saw, like, Jim Kelly play for the Houston mm-hmm. Gamblers, Steve Young on the LA Express, and Herschel Walker for the New Jersey Generals. It was a good league, and I, I really believe that if they didn't decide to try to go to the fall, uh, it either would still be around today or it probably would have forced a merger with the NFL, not with all the teams, but with some of the teams. So, But OTAs are also underway, and the Raiders have been working out in Henderson, Nevada. You know, Stan, I found it interesting. Back in April, the team voted to opt out of the OTAs. Yeah. And now attendance has nearly been close to 100% so far. But my question to you is, we didn't have OTAs last year because of the pandemic. So my question to you, Stan, is how essential are they? I think OTAs is really essential for the young guys. The guys' first, second, third year, it helps get them acclimated. You know, if you're not somebody that's drafted really high, you probably won't play that much your first few years. So it's a good way for you to go ahead and get extra reps in the offseason, help you go ahead and understand the, the complexities within the defense, the offense, the nuance of the game, things like that. But I think that once you become a veteran, you don't need OTAs. I remember several years where you would have a Namdi Asamoah, Richard Seymour. It's good to go ahead and kind of keep your knives sharp, keep you a little bit in shape, keep your timing down, things like that. But I think that once you reach year four, you probably don't need OTAs as much as one would that's a freshly drafted rookie, someone in their sec- going in their second year or their third year, something like that. Okay, with the Raiders situation, I mean, they practically have – a brand new offensive line. I mean, you have Miller, Incognito, James at center, good, and then the rookie Leatherwood at right tackle. Then on the other side of the ball with the defense, I mean, it's learning a new system under defensive coordinator Gus Bradley. You know, they have several new faces like Merrick the safety, Ngakwe, Thomas, Casey Hayward. So how much do OTAs help those two groups in particular? I think it's going to help those two groups in particular from the standpoint of because Casey Hayward just came over, he's going to need to go ahead and learn 
this defense. Learn Gus Bradley. Learn his teammates, things like that. For the new guys coming in, even though we know Casey Edwards is nowhere near being a rookie, but he's going to be a rookie playing for the Las Vegas Raiders. He's going to be a rookie living in the state of Nevada. He's going to be a rookie actually dealing with going from Henderson to the actual stadium, Allegiant Stadium, which is right off the strip, things like that. So just getting acclimated to, okay, these are my new digs. These are my new stomping grounds, things like that. That is probably more indicative of why it will be important for him versus, let's say, like a Derek Carr, somebody who's already been in the fold for a number of years for the Las Vegas Raiders. So I think that everybody's intricate situation is a little bit different. So some guys need the offseason for various reasons versus other guys who may not need it at all or not as much. Dan, I know you didn't play the position, but is offensive line the toughest unit to get to gel, and do they need more time together? Definitely. That is the one position on the field that you can't really be a diva. You cannot be a me guy. You cannot be somebody that thinks in a narcissistic tone because you have to work in unison. Everybody, that center, the pivot, he gets up there at the line of scrimmage. He points out what he, where he, whether he sees the blitz. He points out who he identifies who's the mic, things like that. So everybody has to be on the same page because if you're not on the same page at the old line position, much like. You're not on the same page in the secondary. It's a touchdown. You're not on the same page as an offensive lineman. Yeah, you're going to get your quarterback dumped, and you might get him hurt. And a guy like Derek Carr, we all remember playing the Indianapolis Colts back in 2016 when he breaks his leg and pretty much ruins all of the, all the momentum that they created. So, yeah, so as an offensive lineman, that's probably the number one position on the field where – Everybody has to be on the same page because if you don't, it has dire consequences. Now, Stan, I know you played for Tom Cable and he, he was the head coach, yes. not the offensive line coach, but he's regarded in a lot of circles as the best offensive line coach in football. No what, doubt about it. What makes him so good? What makes him so unique and so special? I cannot speak to Tom Cable's acumen when it comes to offensive line as far as what makes him the best. Number one, I know he played the position. He's very tough-nosed. He's very, uh, very tough-minded, hard-nosed type of individual. No nonsense. That's the biggest thing about him. He's not going to BS you. I can go back and give you a few stories that I had with Tom Cable when he first took over as the interim head coach back in the 2009 season. I'm sorry, the 2008 season. I remember how uh, I was a backup back at that time. We just had D'Angelo Hall, just had cut him. And I remember how I didn't want to be an Oakland Raider back then. And so my approach to the game was definitely not what Tom Cable felt was up to snuff. So whenever we, whenever we released D'Angelo Hall, I didn't even get my starting spot back. And Tom Cable sat me down and he basically told me in so many words, like, Stan, I don't like your approach to the game. You do not appear to be somebody who is all the way all in. You do not appear to be somebody who is trying to, really hone his craft and actually really giving a you know what about the organization that's something that he told me and i pushed back on that a lot because i thought that was really out of line but when i actually went and i was actually honest with myself it made perfect sense and so going into the following season going into the 2010 season i got my starting spot back i had a different approach to the game in OTAs, I was actually showing emotion. I was actually showing that I wanted to be there. I was making more plays. And then all of a sudden, voila, I got my spot back. I think the main thing for Tom Cable is that 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's right up his alley. Offensive line, he knows it very well. And I think that he's someone who is going to be bluntly honest with you. He's a no-nonsense type of guy. He is very tough-minded. He's hard-nosed. And I think that for a lot of players, they struggle with that at times. At least I know I did. And I think ultimately, we already know he knows the X's and O's. No doubt about it. But I think that his, his ability to be able to relate to the players, his ability to be able to relate to his guys where they trust him, they'll follow him. I think that right there is probably his uh, greatest calling card as far as why he's regarded as one of the best in the game. Okay, I do have a follow-up question, but before that, I got to get to a quick sponsorship read. I'm not sure if you know this, but the team in your own backyard, the Houston Texans, they're currently underdogs in every game. Now, obviously, you know, <laughs> it's, it's June, Stan, so things are going to change. But, yeah. you know, if you want to check out all the spreads for week one, including the Raiders, Ravens line, bet online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Bet online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. All right, Stan, I want to go back to something that you said. You were drafted by the Raiders in 2005, yes. and then what, just two, three, two, three, two or three years later, let me spit that out, you weren't happy you wanted out. Why? Because uh, I wasn't playing. I wasn't starting. was something that really was really, uh, I guess you could say, a feather in my hat or feather in my craw, to say the least. My third year, I finally became a starter. I think I had three INTs that year. Played pretty well in the back end. Our defense, is the secondary, was pretty much, I think, top five, top ten, something like that. And then all of a sudden, come year four, that's when D'Angelo Hall, he's trying to get a long-term extension from the Atlanta Falcons. They don't want to give it to him. That was somebody that Al liked even coming out in the draft in, in the 2004 draft. And so uh, they went ahead, they made the move, they traded for him, and then – that bumped me back to Nickelback, or should I say third, you know, on the depth chart or third off the bench or whatever you want to call it. And at the time, as great as D'Angelo Hall was, because he was a two-time pro bowler, big name, high draft pick, all of that, you know, Al gave him seven years, like 70-something million. So definitely, like, you know, he's he, he's a baller. But we all knew that he wasn't necessarily fit for our scheme. He played more of the zone, the quarters, concepts, things like that, and that's where he was a stud at. But in our scheme, it was man coverage, press man, get up there, lock your guy up. You saw Namdi Asma being one of the best to ever do it. And I think that because we all knew that, it was going to be interesting to see how he was going to fit. And it never really was a good fit, which is something I knew. So I'm like, okay, you guys want to go ahead and bench me for this other guy. Well, then why the hell am I here? Like, why don't you go ahead and just trade me? So I asked for a trade a number of times. A number of times between that 2008 and 2009 seasons, I asked for a trade a number of times. It was just never granted to me, obviously. So that was really the main component as to why I had my own issues. But like I said, nonetheless, I always loved being a Raider. When I when I left the Raiders, I didn't want to leave the Raiders. So it was more so just about me getting a chance to play because in this league, I don't care who you are, you enter this league and Chris Carter said it best. You want to leave this league with two things, money and memories. Well, if you're somebody that back then in that rookie wage scale, you're not drafted in the top 10. You're not drafted in the top 11. You don't have a large sum 
of money that you're going to be able to go ahead and use for the rest of your life that can change lineages and things like that. So that's something that is indicative within every football player. Like they want to have financial security. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you were drafted. And that was something I knew I would not be able to obtain if I was just going to remain being a backup because I already knew that, okay, I will be entering the end, the end, the expiration of my rookie contract. I do not want to enter the free agent market as a backup. I want to enter as a starter. That way I can go ahead and have a larger sum of money that's going to be offered to me, whether it's on the free agent market through the Oakland Raiders or, you know, whatever. So it's more so that. And I think that's something that you notice within a lot of players that they want to get to a team where they can start, where they can show their abilities, things like that. That way they can gain some financial security. I think we can add one more memory to that. Maybe a Super Bowl ring. I think players would also want to. Oh, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Now, now I, can I can tell you like this. And I'll, and we're on this platform. I can be as blunt, honest as I, as I can or as I want to. Yes, in this game, you want to leave with money and memories. No doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. Now, if you're really splitting hairs, I can name several Super Bowl champions that will look you in your eye. They won't do it on camera. They won't do it with a microphone anywhere near. But if you ask them, hey, which would you choose? A Pat Mahomes or Deshaun Watson or uh, what Josh Allen is probably going to be signing real soon type of contract, like a large sum of money type of contract, or your Super Bowl ring. As long as the camera's not around, as long as a recorder's not around, they will tell you, I would take the contract over the Super Bowl any day of the week and twice on Sundays because the Super Bowl is great, but I can't feed my kids 10 years after I'm done playing with a Super Bowl ring. I can't do that. And to take it a step further, you talk to most players, you ask them, which would you rather have, Super Bowl championship or Hall of Fame induction? When they're playing, Oh my God, I want to win a Super Bowl. I want to, you know, I, I want to win it for this fan base. I want to like, I want to bring a championship to this city. Things like that. You talk to them off camera. You talk to them with no recording device anywhere in the vicinity. They will tell you, I'd much rather be a Hall of Famer than ever win a Super Bowl. Just because you can win a Super Bowl, that doesn't mean you're a great player. It don't mean you're a good player. You could just simply be on a good team. But you're a Hall of Famer, you're immortalized. Like your your name will never die. Your bus will be in Canton from now until the year 3500 AD. So that's so there's always a dichotomy with how players want to show the media, show the fans, and what they truly, truly think. Because at the end of the day, you want to leave this game with money and memories. But what is the first word I just said out of that? Money. There you go. And when fans hear that, they push back. They detract from it. Oh, you know, he's just being selfish. He's a me guy. He's this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, you wouldn't go to your job and skim off of money. You wouldn't let your boss skim you off of money. So I think that uh, players also are very aware of that. So they know that I have to give a certain version of the truth whenever I'm talking overtly to where the fans can hear because they're going to have their own opinion of it. But when you talk to people off camera with nothing, no recording device around and they can speak candidly, the opinions that they have, the choices that they would make are vastly different than what they say as far as as long as they know that the media and fans are in earshot. 
Well, I think you make a great point. I mean, when you look at the Hall of Fame, you're remembered forever. You're enshrined in Canton. It's a small fraternity. Yes. So many guys have won Super Bowls. I mean, you and I are old enough to remember, you know, Brad Johnson won a Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Bucket. Trent Dilfer won one yes. with the Baltimore, Baltimore Ravens. But, but eventually everybody's going to forget those guys as quarterback. But you don't exactly. forget that small fraternity that's in Canton, yeah, Ohio. No doubt about it. All right, Stan, let's move on. And let's talk about Atlanta Falcons wide receiver Julio Jones. He says he's done in Atlanta playing for the Falcons. I know every Raider fan says, go out and get him. Like every Raider fan, as soon as somebody becomes available, go out and get him. Stan, your thoughts on Julio Jones, where he's going to go, and should the Raiders pursue him? Oh, definitely. I, just like we talked about this uh, not too long ago, you, you pair him with another Alabama alum in Henry Ruggs. I think that that's going to help his game because he's somebody that will be dealing with the number two or number three corner, somebody that he'll easily be able to get off against while he learns the nuances of the receiver position and is able to now run all of the routes on the proverbial route tree. And then you have another Alabama alum in Josh Jacobs. So guess what? You can't load the box. He's now got an empty box. He's going to have a box full of maybe six, sometimes maybe only seven people where it's going to be easier for him to run. And then, oh, yeah, it's going to open up things for Darren Waller, who was a stud last year. He was a stud the year before that. We'll go to the Pro Bowl again this season. Him and Travis Kelsey and uh, George Kittle, the top three receivers in the NFL right now, you can go ahead and order them however you choose. So I think that, that would all, all of that would help the Las Vegas Raiders offense. And Derek Carr is someone who would definitely be appreciative of adding a new shiny toy because you cannot you cannot hone in. You cannot go ahead and zero in or fixate on just one aspect of this offense. You're going to have to defend every blade of grass, all 53 yards from sideline to sideline, simply because everybody is able to get off. Everybody's able to make plays. So nonetheless, if you add a Julio Jones into the mix, I do not see any way that this could go wrong. I don't see any way that you are not right now challenging the Kansas City Chiefs for supremacy in the AFC West. Okay. First off, I'm going to say this. If any team gives up a first-round pick for Julio Jones, they're completely out of their minds and off their rocker. He should fetch, Stan, at the best, a second-round pick. And if I'm the Raiders, I am going to stay away from him, and I'm going to tell you why. This team, to me, is not a player away from winning a Super Bowl. And how much is a guy who's 32 years old coming off a season in which he missed seven games, he caught 51 passes, and listen to the money he's scheduled to make, Stan, in the next three years. Just over $15 million this year, and then $11 million, just over $11 million in the next two seasons. And I feel like the Raiders already have, and you just mentioned, one of the best. I, I, I'm going to say he's a tight end slash wide receiver in Darren Waller. Is that fair yeah, to say? He, yeah. He's a playmaker. Okay. Right. I want to see the young guys like Henry Ruggs, Brian Edwards, as well as tight end Foster Moreau. I want to give them a chance to develop and get more involved in the offense. And before you counter what I'm going to say, here's what Ruggs had to say to the media during OTAs about his first season and the upcoming year. Uh, of course, I'm ready to assume a big role. I mean, last year, it was, for me to describe it, it was a start. Uh, and that, that's pretty much the best way I can describe it. It's something to build on. It's a starting point, and we just going to build from there. And, of course, like I said, ready for, you know, take on a bigger role and help my team in a, in a bigger way. I think that for Ruggs, it is something that could help him because Julio Jones 
is six two, six three, something like that. Two fifteen. Ran a four three at the combine coming out. That's why he was the either first or second receiver taken in the draft. I know it was out of him and uh him and my man for just time with the Arizona Cardinals. One of my favorite AJ Green. It was out of it was out of those two. I forget who was one or two. I think they went five and six, but they're both great. We'll be in the Hall of Fame and much love to them. Because of Julio Jones is physically gifted as he is, big, strong, fast, physical. He's a pretty good route runner. That's something that Henry Ruggs can learn from. So I would like that just from the standpoint of what you just said about having the young guys, but who are they going to learn from? They need an older vet to learn from. You look at every receiver who actually winds up being good in the NFL. I can promise you he probably had a veteran on the roster that he learned from. Who did Julio Jones learn from? Oh, yeah, the guy that came out of my draft class, Roddy White. So that's something that Henry Ruggs needs. He cannot be the number one guy in that in that meeting room. He has to have somebody that he can learn from. And for a uh, for a Derek Carr, he needs somebody that he can go and sling it to aside from a Waller or a Henry Ruggs. Now, as far as the compensation part of it, Maybe a first-round pick may be too high. Maybe it is. Do I feel that the Raiders are just a player away? No. But I think that will give them a potent offense. And because they have a potent offense, now you don't need to have a defense that is stellar. You just need a defense who simply is serviceable. Kind of like when the Kansas City Chiefs won a Super Bowl in 2019. Their defense wasn't better than the 49ers, but their defense was just good enough to go out there and not give up more points than the offense is going to score because we know our offense is high octane, high potency. So I think from that aspect, that's where Julio Jones can be an asset to the Las Vegas Raiders. Now, like you just said, the compensation, that's where things kind of get tricky. The Atlanta Falcons want a first-round pick. I don't think that Julio Jones has played a full 16-game season in an uh, amount of years. I believe he's 32 years old right now. So yep. his, best, his best days are behind him. But nonetheless, imagine what a 900-yard receiving season would do when you add that to the Las Vegas Raiders offense. I'm not talking about his 1,500, 1,600-yard season that he's produced uh, in this league. Just 900 yards. That is going to do so much for the offense. So I think that the compensation is something that, yes, like Atlanta is probably going to have to lower their price a little bit. As far as the money, I mean, DeAndre Hopkins just signed an extension two years, $54 million, like, maybe some months ago, <laughs> like as far as the money, it is not astronomical to where I think he's going to kill the cap or something like that. I think that you can make it work. I mean, that's what the capologists, that's what the people in the front office get paid for. Find a way to manipulate the books. I know Al Davis did it for a number of years. Manipulate the damn books, figure out how to do it. Now, as far as the compensation, that probably is that that's going to be the, that's going to be the one main component that actually hinges on this deal happening or not happening, not just for the Las Vegas Raiders, but just for every team in the league. I think that Atlanta is going to have to come to some sort of Jesus moment as far as realizing what his true market value is. But I think nonetheless, any team outside of the Kansas City Chiefs, outside of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you're going to be happy to acquire a talent like Julio Jones, regardless of him being 32 and not being able to finish out a full season, things like that, just because you know when healthy what he brings to the table. Where do you think he ends up? Ah, oh, man, I think that he probably ends up. I'm thinking maybe Tennessee. I've and heard that. Yeah, I and I really, really dislike that because I don't think he's going to like Tennessee. Julio Jones needs a high octane, 
aerial attack, not something that is suppressed and depressed because we want to go ahead and do the ground, the ground and pound type thing. So I think that uh, the Baltimore Ravens I've also heard, but I'm not sure if that's even really on the table, the Los Angeles Rams, but you know what? They already got Cooper Cup. They got Robert Woods. They got Deshaun Jackson. I don't think they can even wait, make that work just from a numbers standpoint as far as that and the dollars and cents uh, factor about it. So I, I look to see Julio Jones go to a team that is not going to threat, that is not going to move the needle. That's what I see. I don't see him going to Green Bay. I would love to to see him in Green Bay. I would love to see him in New England because playing for Bill Belichick, yes, you are definitely going to be in the playoffs, no doubt about that, last year notwithstanding. But I see Julio Jones going to a team where it is not going to effing matter because it's going to be a team that either A, does not have stellar quarterback play, B, they don't have the type of offensive nucleus around him for him to really show everything he can do or C is just going to be a downtrodden franchise because and they want to acquire this great talent because they see he's available and maybe he can go ahead and try to rejuvenate. Maybe he can go ahead and try to uh, inject some sort of electricity in our franchise, in our fan base. Imagine if they get Green Bay gets him hey, in front office to say, hey, Aaron, we got you a new toy to, to hey, play man, with. Listen, <laughs> Come on back you know, now. He goes to Green Bay teaming up with Devontae Adams. Oh, boy. Look Ooh, out. Look out. That. You got that right. All right, Stan, let's hit on our final topic. And it, it kind of has to do with, you know, athletes, mental health and, and the media in general. And uh, I don't know if our fan base is familiar, but tennis superstar Naomi Osaka, she withdrew earlier this week from the French Open. And then she was fined by the tournament because she didn't participate in a post-match press conference. Uh, this is a four-time major champ. She also revealed she's been dealing with depression and anxiety since winning the 2018 U.S. Open. And, you know, Stan, for some athletes, they get along great with the media. Others deal with it because it's part of the job. And then still other athletes didn't talk with the media at all. So let me ask you this. Um, what kind of relationship did you have with the media when you were playing? It was a little bit up and down. There was a few reporters that we had in the locker room that I had pretty good reports with. There's a few. Let me see here. Uh, Steve Corcoran. There was a few other ones. Uh, but those, but he's the one that really comes to mind that you actually have a pretty good relationship with. But ultimately, like just, you know, across the board, I did not like the media. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I always felt that the media, they were snakes. I felt like they were, I felt like they were junkyard dogs because of this. Because you can write the news, you can report the news without putting your own personal bias in it. You can report the news, you can report what happened without putting your own form of jealousy in it, spite, envy, whatever human emotion you want to go ahead and put on it. Something that I've always believed is that we all as men, we grow up, some of us turn out to be athletes, some entertainers, some doctors, lawyers, writers, ditch digger, UPS driver, a lawyer, I can go all the way down the board. But one thing that's pretty, it's pretty synonymous with all of us, we grow up at age five, six, seven, and we don't grow up at age seven wanting to be a broadcaster. We don't grow up at age seven wanting to be the milkman. We grow up liking sports and having our hero be who's probably the best at the sport that we like the most growing up. I think that's a pretty safe statement to make. So no matter what, we all grow up liking sports. 
Now then you get to middle school, you get to high school, you get to college, and then that's when all of a sudden you realize, okay, you know what, this sport may not be for me. Uh, maybe I'm not good enough to play it, something like that. You get to college and all of a sudden, okay, I didn't make the team. You then leave college and you realize, okay, I didn't get the phone call. I didn't get drafted. So that's where a little bit of the envy, the spite starts to set in because you still are a fan of the sport. You love watching it. I mean, who doesn't? And so that's when you can start to see when said reporter makes a statement. He reports in his column about what happened in the game. Now, you can easily go and say that so-and-so didn't play well. But when you add the hyperbole, when you add that extra imagery, when you add all those extra superlatives, that's when now you can start to see, okay, it starts to seem like it's a little bit more that's sprinkled in to his assessment of how the game was played. And that's when you start to feel a little bit of the envy, the spite, the jealousy, the, dare I say the word, hatred, things like that. So I always had that inkling. I always had that mindset. And just from certain te certain teams, certain reporters, where you could see that if it was a player they liked and the guy didn't play well, they were very delicate with their evaluation of said player. If it was a player you know they didn't like, oh, they went in all the way. And I didn't like that because both guys didn't play well. But you're much more tactful with one guy than you are the other. So I never really had the uh, the greatest relationship just because I always thought the media were snakes. But um, one thing about me but now being on the other side of that, that's one thing that I do my best to try to do is not let personal feelings, not let anything, any other human emotion enter into my evaluation of said player. And I also think of it like this, and this is something as to why you start to see the issues that Osaka may be going through is because I try to evaluate a player. What would I say if his mom, his dad, his brother, his sister, his kids were literally sitting right beside me with my assessment? I'm going to go ahead and give the truth, but I don't need to be extremely descriptive. I don't need to be extremely uh, hyperbolic with how I give my assessment. I'll just simply say he didn't play well. That's it. Everybody knows. But I think when you start to give the extra oomph, that's where a lot of athletes, you draw the ire of a lot of athletes. Okay, so I've been doing this stand for almost 30 years. I mean, I've worked for CNN Sports. I've worked for NFL Network. I've worked for Fox Sports. I've been in all kinds of locker rooms, Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL. And my game plan was always like, you know what, I have, this is what I want to ask these guys about. And if someone else asked the questions and I got the answers that I needed, that was great. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to ask a question just to hear myself talk. Now, I know when I go in these locker rooms or even these press conferences, I mean, there are media members who did a wonderful job. There really is. And then you can tell, like you said, there are some that have an ax to grind. Yes. And then there's still others who are completely clueless. So I get that. I think there's all sides to it when it comes to the media. But I want to ask you something now, because you, like you said, you are part of the media. You do this podcast. I know you've been an analyst on college football games for ESPN. Stan, how tough is it for you now to criticize and not go over the top, but just call somebody out? Hey, they're not playing well. Is that something that you walk a fine line with right now? 
it's not anything I really walk a fine line with simply because as players, we're not stupid. <laughs> like, we know when we're not playing well. We know if we miss the play. Like, there's nobody who's able to recognize a bad play sooner than a player or a former player. Like, it's very clear. So players do not have a problem with you mentioning how they played badly or they didn't play well. They don't have a problem with that. It's when you start to go over the top or if you misassess them. So I'll give you an example. I remember back in 2010 season, we're playing the Tennessee Titans, and we were playing cover two. And anybody that knows cover two knows that the corners have reroutes on the receivers and the safeties have everything deep. Well, we're playing the Tennessee Titans, and we have a safety. And Tennessee, obviously, with Chris Johnson and Vince Young, they had a really, really good run game back then. And they do a play-action fake in the backfield, and our safeties bite up because they think it's a run. Well, then all of a sudden, I get a reroute on Nate Washington, and he basically does a deep post corner, which he's basically he runs toward the middle of the field, and then he breaks it toward the, toward the, uh, the corner of the end zone. Well, all of a sudden, I look back, and I see, oh, wow, our safety just bit up on the run. So now uh, Nate Washington is running wide open. Uh, Vince Young heaves the ball all the way to him. It's about a 50-yard touchdown play. And I'm running into the screen at the last second trying to go ahead and stop Nate Washington. Well, you let a reporter, just what you just alluded to, Dennis, who doesn't really know the game, doesn't know what the hell he's doing, all he writes in the article is, oh, Stanford Rout got beat on a 60-yard touchdown. When that's not anything the case. So I think for players, I don't have to walk a fine line because, A, I know the game. So I know what a miscommunication or a mental bust looks like on the defense side of the ball and the offense side of the ball as well. So I'm going to, I'm number one, I'm going to be correct with my assessments. And if I, and if I feel fuzzy on something, I will make sure to mention, I'm not sure what they were doing in the back end, but this is how it looked. I would word it just like that. And then also, if it's something I know exactly what's going on, I'm just simply going to say he didn't play the ball well, or so-and-so missed that tackle. So-and-so dropped that pass. I'm not going to go ahead and give the imagery of man, he can't catch a cold in a snowstorm or such, such and such. He, man, he can't cover a soul. He's out there always getting beat. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say he looks like he's struggling with his coverage. He's struggled over the last couple weeks. He needs to make that play on that ball, things like that. I'm not going to go into the extra descriptive type of nature that some of these reporters go into. So, no, I don't feel that I have to walk a fine line because as long as you're objective and as long as you actually are going off of what was actually seen on camera or on the TV screen, most players, they don't want to hear it. I mean, who does? But they understand, like, yeah, I didn't play good in the Super Bowl. And that's what people are going to write about. So I think as long as you keep it like that, most players will not have a problem. I'll use one last example. Pat Mahomes. Pat Mahomes, no, he didn't play good in the Super Bowl. But if you start to think, oh, see, man, I've always kind of thought Pat Mahomes was more of a front runner. I don't really think that he handles, uh, you know, under pressure well. And I think that he kind of chokes in big games if he doesn't get luck plays like he had when he threw the ball to Tariq Hill late in the game against the 49ers and basically got lucky to go ahead and win that game. When I now start talking about his mental or his psyche or his character, that's what he has a problem with. But if I say Pat Mahomes didn't play well in the Super Bowl, and that's the first game in his NFL career that he's lost by more than seven points, and the first game in his NFL career where he did not score a touchdown, that's factual. That's fact. You can look at the game and you can see that's a fact right there. But if I then start talking about what I think is going on in his mind or what I think of a type of a character he is, what I think as far as what he is as a competitor, that's when the players are going to start to push back on you because it's like, okay, now you're speaking about something you don't know. 
just kind of what you think, but versed on what you see on the actual game field, what you see on the actual film, on the TV screen, that's factual. Nobody can argue that the Kansas City Chiefs lost to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Final question on this topic, Stan. Now that you're doing the podcast and you are an analyst for college football, is it what you thought it was going to be? Is it easier or is it tougher? Oh, I can tell you, doing the color analyst during a game, that right there is very tough. Uh, I remember starting back in 2017, it was extremely daunting of a task. I've gotten better at it because I've gotten more reps. But I would say as far as the overall analyst, studio work, things like that, it's pretty much, it's pretty much what I thought it would be. I would say that when I first started off, I did have to walk the fine line because there was guys who were still playing that I played with or against that I know that I did not want to say a negative thing about them. But then I had to remind myself, okay, I wouldn't somebody I wouldn't mind somebody saying a negative thing about me as long as it was true and it was factual and it was objective. So I always try to uh, make sure that I'm objective and not personal, but other than the color analyst, everything is pretty much kind of what I thought it would be. The color analyst during the game, the commentary, yes, that right there is difficult because, man, you have to be very quick on your cues and you have to be able to dissect a play. And then you have to go ahead and present it to the audience all within seconds before the next play is going to be, um, is going to be kicked off. It is a fast world. It really, really is. Stan, great stuff as always, my man. Always, man. Dennis, you know I love being on with you. All right, Raider Nation, that's going to do it for another edition of the Believe in Raiders podcast presented by BetOnline.ag. For my partner, Stanford Rout, I'm Dennis Ackerman. Thanks so much for listening, and may all your punts find the coffin corner. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.